hello everyone. Welcome to the NASPA Student Leadership Podcast. My name is Dr. John Mark Day. I serve as the Director of Leadership and Campus Life at Oklahoma State University. And we're really excited uh, about our guest today. I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. John Thielen to the podcast today. Dr. Thielen is the University Research Professor at the University of Kentucky. He previously taught at Indiana University and the College of William and Mary. Dr. Thielen did his undergraduate work at Brown University and earned his PhD at the University of California in Berkeley. Dr. Thielen is the author of several books, most notably the recent release, Going to College in the 60s. He has a new edition of his seminal work, A History of American Higher Education, coming out in April. Welcome, John. We are so excited to have you here. Thank you so much. Very good to be here. Awesome. We want to spend our, our, the first part of our time together just getting to know you a little bit better. So, you know, you, you graduated from Brown University, which is an institution with a long and storied history. As an alum of Brown, what, what do you think about from your time there and what makes you the most proud? Well, the thing that characterized it, it was a, a genuinely an adventure for me because I graduated from high school in the Los Angeles area, and so it was a long way from home, and it was obviously a very historic and old institution. And I think what has made me proud is that I happened to read their original charter from 1764, and it was very lively and animated, and for its era, tolerant and contributed to opportunity. And so I felt very uh, honored to be part of that tradition uh, and to try to do my part. Also, one thing I liked is that they had a very generous need-based financial aid program, uh, which enabled me to uh, afford to go to college. So I think that's one of these things we, we always like to talk about when we talk about access to students to be able to go to these institutions is not just what going to college means for them, but this, this ability for them to take their place in this legacy. And just like what you talked about with the charter at Brown, it kind of shapes the way a student then thinks about their future going forward. And, and what happened to me is, uh, as a history major, I started to notice throughout various courses, uh, not only in history but sociology, how important uh, school and educational opportunity and going to college, how important those were in terms of our broader American society. And so I kind of kept my eye on those themes through several courses uh, with a commitment that at some point I would like to devote myself uh, in some conscientious way to uh, researching and studying uh, what I thought was a significant topic. Well, that's I think it's really interesting. So many times I think we look back at our college experience later on and have the ability to connect some of these dots. But what was it like for you to, to be connecting those dots as you were going through the experience, as you were sitting in classes, seeing your coursework connect to this larger charter? How did that then shape your perspective as, as a budding historian? It was a time in the uh, mid and late 1960s where it was very clear that higher education was not only important, but was going to be more so. It was on the cusp of a, a great deal of federal legislation that would uh, provide student financial aid and also civil rights and social justice. So there was this genuine sense of being a participant observer hmm. in some of these uh, institutions and programs that really were going to make a difference. And, and that was uh, exciting. I would imagine that felt 
uh, sort of like a big privilege at the time to get to experience those as those changes were happening. Yes, and, and also at the same time, uh, the 1960s uh, was a period of uh, a great deal of conflict and controversy. So you had this kind of perfect storm of both opportunity and optimism with uh, reflection and rethinking and activism. And so uh, I tried to, to pay attention uh, and to participate and learn from those uh, you know, very diverse events. Absolutely. So as you then went through the rest of your educational career and, and earned a PhD and, and started writing and thinking and researching about history as a faculty member, was it always with an eye towards higher education or, or was that something that you sort of circled back to later on? I think that was in the back of my mind and what happened at the University of California, Berkeley, by coincidence, uh, my advisor, who was one of the few tenured women faculty in the university, wow. uh, Geraldine Yonsich Clifford, uh, was very well uh, connected with several sociologists and economists and public policy experts who had a focus on higher education. So she encouraged me to uh, extend uh, American history uh, into the study of education and educational policy. And it was just um, very fortuitous and uh, just a, a very good match that helped me bring together these varied topics that I had a vague interest in, but they gave me a focus and some good ways to discuss and explore. Absolutely. And I think for so many of our, our students and researchers, it's, the, it's that moment where you find that focus that everything starts to really stem from, and, and, it, and it sets your agenda for a good long time, I think. Yes, indeed. So then as a historian of higher education, somebody who studies this, moving to the, the College of William and Mary must have been you know, a very significant moment in your career. What was that like, and then what was it like to leave? Well, uh, I talked to a colleague uh, from Stanford when I had arrived in Williamsburg, Virginia, and he said, what's the time zone difference? And I said, well, here in Virginia, compared to Northern California, uh, we're three hours ahead but sometimes 100 years behind. Yeah. And, uh, but what was very, very moving about the College of William and Mary is that it is an institution that is very aware of its heritage and takes it seriously. And so that, for example, uh, I had the honor of giving an invited lecture in the Wren Building, which is uh, the oldest uh, standing academic building uh, in the American colonies. Wow. And the way I viewed that uh, was that it was my opportunity to try to connect this very uh, revered past, but to make it lively and connect it to the present. And I always tried to use the, the heritage of William and Mary uh, as a way to make those connections so that uh, history was, was not antiquarian, but was very much involved in uh, the contemporary issues that we faced in the 20th and 21st centuries. Absolutely. I love those moments where you get to actually, you know, connect those dots as a student and feel the history and, and sort of the weight of everything that is, has come before. And sometimes it was, there was nothing abstract about it. Uh, in, in one of the uh, lecture rooms, uh, there literally was no electric lighting. Uh, oh. So we really did rediscover the past by candlelight. Wow. 
what, what an interesting experience, I think, for those students to, to go through that and see it that way. Well, and now you have moved to the University of Kentucky. So is, is Kentucky as basketball rabid as the rest of us think that it is? Well, to use a basketball metaphor, I took your question and used it as a jump ball question with my graduate students at class this morning. And their consensus was that the external image probably underestimates uh, <laughs> how, how deeply uh, uh, UK basketball pervades not only the campus, but interesting, the community uh, and the state. Hmm. Uh, and so, yes, it is, it is very special. And, and uh, Kentuckians and UK uh, members of the community take it seriously. But what it led me to think, though, is that I think that every college and university can ground much of its heritage and its saga in part in its intercollegiate athletics tradition. And so that, for example, uh, when one thinks of a, a university, often it brings to mind the conference they're in. So that if I talk about, for example, uh, a Big Ten university, uh, it's an example of where athletics uh, connects very much to the distinctive educational and academic identity of that institution and its members. Uh, and the same would be true, for example, for the Atlantic Coast Conference, or uh, if we say like the Ivy League, that's, that's an athletic conference, but the Ivy League connotes a much broader uh, identity and image uh, for all its members. And I think that uh, each college and each conference uh, acquires that, that interesting heritage. And, and also what's so fascinating for uh, students and colleagues who are not from the United States is that intercollegiate athletics remains so central and so distinctive uh, to higher education, and uh, it's a topic that that should not be divorced from you know our overall study of of what our colleges and universities are and what they do. Yeah, it's so interesting you you bring that up. I think about our experience here. Oklahoma State is part of the Big Twelve, and. Big 12 is a, is a fairly diverse conference in terms of institutional types. We've got public research, flagship institutions, land-grant institutions, private religiously affiliated schools, and, and so much of the conversation that we have is what are Big 12 peers doing and experiencing, and the only thing that really connects us is this one athletic conference, and yet we do sort of have this identity as a, as a peer group, but that's a really fascinating point. It is, and, 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 and from the outside looking in uh, to the Big 12 and particularly to Oklahoma State University, uh, I have a special interest in that because I was a college wrestler at Brown. Oh, and okay. as I'm sure as you and, and your colleagues well know, that uh, Oklahoma State University uh, is the mecca, uh, mm -hmm. the home of college wrestling. So, so uh, I, I hope to add that as a pilgrimage uh, in my athletic tours. Well, I was going to say, I, I would be thrilled to host you at OSU. We will go to the College Wrestling Hall of Fame. I'll introduce you to John Smith. We'll have a fantastic trip down here. Oh, wonderful. And, and I, matter of fact, I saw Coach Smith wrestle when he was an undergraduate and oh, wow. followed his career and his exemplary coaching. So that's, that's very thoughtful of you. Absolutely. Well, let's get in a little bit to your research, the work that you have done. Uh, one of the notions that you present in the book, A History of American Higher Education, is that ideas of turbulence, financial insecurity, they aren't new. They're not novel in the academy. 
And yet, uh, you know, we get these really alarmist tendencies. Our higher education leaders talk about the gloom and doom of the financial situation. And so it it creates a lot of comfort that we have been through this before uh, and there are challenges. And so for those of of us or those of our listeners and maybe our listeners, uh, institutions and bosses who are predicting the imminent doom of higher education, could you provide a little bit of of comfort and context for that? Well, I'd like to provide some financial donations, but (laughs) prior to that, uh, no, what I would say is if there is yeah, I've, I've got a place you can send a check right now. Oh, that would be okay. Fantastic. All right. Well, your, 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 your check is in the mail. <laughs> okay, um, great. No, the, but, but if there is one constant in the history of American colleges and universities is that there is a uh, continual uh, quest for resources uh, so that uh, a college or university can carry out its mission. Now, in terms of uh, very, very... Uh, at-risk periods, I think that in the late 1970s, I would say from about 1975 to 1985, even the very, very conservative Carnegie Commission on Higher Education came out with a projection. They felt that somewhere between one-fourth and one-third of colleges and universities in the United States uh, would go out of business. Uh, the, the financial strains, you had a, a decline in the number of high school graduates. You had uh, downturns in both the state budgets, uh, cuts in federal funding, and add to that uh, more than 10 years of double-digit inflation that, that just wreaked havoc with the ability of all colleges and universities to uh, balance their their finances with their educational roles and mission. And what was interesting is that from that adversity, colleges and universities learned very, very good lessons uh, in terms of their services, their administration. And I might add, uh, one of the characteristics of that era was increased attention to the importance of student affairs uh, and the the life of students and the services and activities uh, provided within the campus. And so uh, most colleges, they both learned from adversity, uh, they responded, they were resilient, uh, and they came out uh, much the better. And so uh, my hope that we'll have our counterpart um, thoughtful learning and response uh, in the, the particular era we're in now. That's such a good point. I think, you know, so many times these do provide opportunities for us to be thoughtful about the way that we approach our work uh, and to really chart a course for the way the institution is going to look in the future. Yes, and and, and I, I think that one characteristic of American colleges and universities is on the one hand, we want them to be historic institutions that do invoke a heritage. At the same time, colleges and universities are not complacent. Uh, they are continually changing uh, in uh, who they teach, what they offer, uh, continually re-examining. And I think that that's a, 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 an energetic dynamic of American higher education that really is uh, the marvel of, of the rest of the world. It's such a fascinating tension, right? Yeah, this, this yeah. idea of the juxtaposition with the past and the future and, and, and where we've been and where we're going creates a unique moment for us. With that in mind, thinking about the history of higher education, 
What are some things that you wish that higher education leaders considered more about the history of our field? One example, I think over the last three or four years and continuing, is that think of all the um, episodes and incidents where uh, names of buildings, statues, commemorations, uh, the motifs of our past uh, really came to life as a source of uh, discussion, controversy, and I think uh, the lesson there for college and university leaders was that for higher education, history does matter. And that uh, in addition to looking at the budget and the statistical databases, uh, keeping an eye and an ear open as to uh, what our colleges project in terms of their heritage and memories, uh, that's a very, very crucial consideration uh, I think that all presidents and provosts and deans and boards uh, are very, very aware of now, and I think that's, that's a, a good thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. For your own experience, you know, as you said, going through college in the 60s and, and treating it really as this participant observer, moving from that to now as a researcher and a faculty, you, having recently published a book about college in the 60s, what surprised you sort of looking back on that era and on those experiences? Uh, in writing Going to College in the 60s, which was published in November, what struck me most about the decade is that so much public attention, both in the past and in the rediscovery of that decade today, has gravitated toward uh, some very important visible events usually campus disruption, whether it be at the University of California, Berkeley, or in 1968 at Columbia, uh, or other selected campuses. What I tried to show in my writing was that although those were very important landmarks, they were not the complete story. And you had to look at the entire decade. And what you realize is how diverse and large not only the United States is, but also uh, its range of colleges and universities. And my take was that many of the volatile events really came at the very end of the decade uh, and climaxed around 1970-71. And so uh, you have to keep in mind that that there was still a great deal of campus tradition and kind of student life uh, that was more traditional. In addition to kind of national politics, the thing that bothered all campuses in that decade was what I call crowding and competition. Uh, Enrollments often doubled or tripled at many campuses, and it simply meant some very pragmatic things that class size got larger, uh, your your dormitory room that was supposed to have uh, you and one roommate, you ended up having four of you share. And so that this, this compression uh, led to more student awareness of what the college experience should be, both in terms of curriculum and then later extending to uh, social justice and, and the larger issues. So it was a, it was a, a decade of intense contrast uh, and confrontations. And you know, I think, like we talked about earlier, that decade and those confrontations, those contrasts, really served to significantly shape the way we experience higher education today, right? I think well, very seen, much so. And yeah. and in addition, for example, to student activism in terms of uh, national politics, I think within the campus, 
uh, it was a, a great transformational time for student affairs. Um, I think that, that the change of attitude towards students uh, and the, the expansion of the number and kinds of good services that a campus provided to its entering freshmen and all the way on through, if, if you were to go back in time and try to reconstruct uh, what it was like to be an undergraduate, I think the uh, relative lack of services and often sometimes just avoidance or indifference uh, from uh, campus administration we would find pretty alarming today. So I think that's a, a very good positive uh, gain uh, that our campuses learned uh, from that decade. That's really interesting and hope we continue to learn those lessons. Uh, as we were preparing for this project, you shared a quote from a 1963 Harvard admissions brochure that's just fascinating, and it said this, it said, wealth like age does not make a university great, but it helps. Do you, in your opinion, is that more true now and, and why? I think that uh, it's still very true that having uh, each and both of those features uh, is, is a good thing. Uh, what I would add, though, is each institution, whether it's historic or relatively new, uh, whether it has a large endowment or does not, each institution has to come to grips with its mission, including its heritage. And also, uh, I do not think that Money alone will solve all problems. Uh, it's more I see that having ample resources uh, as, as providing the means to do good work, uh, but one could have a lot of money and fritter or squander it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that uh, certainly we, we want to achieve some reasonable level of financial support through a variety of sources, but then the real challenge becomes how do we do this in a creative and thoughtful way uh, that really um, meets the genuine needs of our students. Yeah, just having, just throwing money at it isn't always the solution to the no. problem. No. And, and, and I think that's one of the things that just as you talked about in these more challenging financial times, it does force you to, you don't have that as the luxury anymore. So you do have to be thoughtful, strategic, and intentional in the way that you are allocating the resources you have. I, I agree very much with that. Uh, the book that you wrote, A History of American Higher Education, is coming out with a third edition in April. What can we look forward to in that third edition? In reviewing the book with the excellent editors at Johns Hopkins University Press, uh, we kept intact um, much of the original material. But where the editors really pressed me was to try to make history lively and useful uh, to connect past and present. So the main uh, addition was to try to write historically about the very recent past, uh, particularly the last decade and coming into 2019. And I, I think that, that the overriding view that I came away with is that there are some very genuine challenges that may not be unprecedented, but I think that we are now in a period uh, in the 21st century where colleges and universities cannot afford to be complacent. 
uh, and they they must acknowledge generational changes uh, in um, what students have learned uh, and what they have not learned as they enter into our campus. And I think that there is going to be growing uh, and rediscovered awareness of the importance of undergraduate education. And this would hold true whether you're at a community college or whether you're at uh, a large research university. So I think there's going to be a complex and healthy uh, rediscovery of the student experience ranging from affordability and financial aid to retention and to uh, the kinds of comprehensive experience we want our students to have as they uh, take this step just prior to entering into uh, adulthood and their professional lives. I'm really excited about that. It sounds like this third edition is going to have some uh, historical perspectives that are very timely and relevant really for these big conversations that we're having right now. Well, I, I hope so. And I think that, that, uh, that what will be particularly challenging is that there are some real splits in that uh, there's a relatively small number of institutions that uh, do have the advantages of uh, being selective academically. They have good resources. They have supportive alumni. Um, they have selective admissions. Uh, at the same time, we're very diverse. And if we look at all our institutions, um, the, the questions of access and affordability, I think, are going to be paramount. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's on the front, really, of everybody's minds right now. Well, thank you, Dr. Thielen. I think this has been such a fascinating glimpse at really this history of higher education and, and how we are still learning and, and working and, and thinking through those very important lessons. Uh, it's been a real privilege to talk with you today. Well, the honor and privilege are mine, and uh, I, I thank you for showing interest uh, in my thoughts and work. And uh, NASPA has my highest regard, so I look forward to uh, uh, working with you and helping NASPA members. So thank you very much. Fantastic, and, and we'll look forward to continuing this conversation here in Stillwater. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll hit up a wrestling match. It'll be a great time. Go Pokes! Go folks. Well, hey, thanks to everyone out there for joining us for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASPA Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. Uh, again, huge thanks to Dr. John Thielen for giving of his time and sharing about the really interesting work he's doing. You can get more information about the Knowledge Community and today's podcast on our social media outlets, including Facebook at facebook.com slash SALead, Twitter at NASPA SLPKC, or at Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. You can also connect with me on Twitter uh, at John Mark Day. If you are interested in being a guest on the podcast, if you have a topic uh, or person that you think we should be talking with, please let us know. You can send an email to naspaleaderpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, so thank you all.